Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we are reviewing Zero to One by Peter Thiel. Notes on startups or how to build the future. Peter Thiel is a name you probably recognize. He was heavily involved in PayPal in the early days, which they built up and and sold for $1.5 billion. And with that money, became a venture capitalist, invested in Facebook, which has done very well, invested in SpaceX and uh, heaps and heaps and heaps of successful businesses. Man, he wasn't he wasn't just part of PayPal. He was the one who assembled that world class team together, who they call now the PayPal Mafia. And in this team, you had Elon Musk, who obviously founded Tesla, SpaceX. You had Reid Hoffman, who founded LinkedIn. You had Steve Chen, Chad Hurley, and George Karim, who founded YouTube. You had Jeremy Stoppelman, who founded Yelp, and then you had Peter Thiel who also founded Palantir. So together, all these people, they started $1 billion companies. That's a serious, serious, serious group of heavy hitters right there. And so obviously, uh, someone with that much business experience should have a few good ideas to how to go about starting a business. And the book is all about moving from zero to one. So it's basically how to get an idea up and running. And he says, every moment in business only happens in once. So, the next Bill Gates is not going to build an operating system, the next Larry Page won't make a search engine, and the next Mark Zuckerberg isn't going to create a social network. So, if you're trying to copy exactly what these people did, you're actually not even learning from them. Yeah, of course, it is easier to copy. You've, you've got a model there and you can think, oh, yeah, I can probably do this a little bit better, uh, but that's not going to give you the tremendous amount of success as doing something brand new. He says that you know taking something that already exists and trying to make it better is what he says moving from like 1 to N. So, you're trying to improve something that already exists. But to create something brand new, that's when you move from 0 to 1. And that act of creating, it's a singular action and there's phenomenal results you can achieve if you do something brand new like that. So, the book's going to show you how to create companies that build new things. So, it has innovation as you know core of their whole entire culture. So, it draws on everything Peter has learned from PayPal and his, his pals as the mafia and investing in hundreds of startups. And whilst there are patterns, he says, there's no formulas for success that he, what he's found because the paradox of teaching entrepreneurship is that no formulas even exist. So, chapter one is the challenge of the future and he sets us up in terms of thinking a little bit differently because he says, you know, there's no formulas, there's no set paths, these are the the six steps that you need to do to build a brand new business. He says it's all about thinking differently. So, you have to have a a completely different idea and then obviously, you have to be right. So, whenever he's interviewing someone, whether it's for a job or whether it's to invest in their, their company, he always asks them, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? So, he says, you know, like, what do you believe that almost nobody else believes? So, what sort of, what different ideas or what different values do you hold? It sounds kind of easy and, and simple and straightforward, but it's actually extremely hard to answer. Like most people would answer something like, the education system is broken and needs fixing, or now is the greatest time in history to be alive, or there is no God. Or, but all these things are really shit answers because a lot of people believe these things. If you you got to really think hard to actually find something that you believe that no one else does. Yeah, Peter Thiel is a big uh, contrarian and he, he likes to go against the herd, but he's saying that these answers, they're not really contrarian, like they're not... 
like they maybe sound somewhat controversial or something, but really they, these are ongoing debates and you've just sort of picked a side where maybe there's a minority, but it's uh, not like something completely different that almost nobody else agrees with. He says that, you know, the most contrarian thing to do is not to oppose a majority. It's actually to go out there and think for yourself, which very, very few people do. Mm. So, mate, I'll ask you the question. What do oh, you no. believe? <laughs> what important truth do you believe that few people agree with you on? Oh, mate, I should have anticipated that. Mate, you love to stitch me up with things like this. Uh, question without notice. So, you're basically conventional. I'd say um, if I was in a job interview with Peter Thiel, I've he just crossed me off the list, I reckon. <laughs> That's an instant fail. Mate, I won't let you ask me the question because I've got nothing prepared as well. But he says, what, what does this contrarian question have to do with the future? Well, the future is a set of moments that are yet to come. And obviously, uh, nobody can really predict the future. But what he says is that the future is going to be somewhat different from today. So, you know, if we're going back to trying to reinvent something that's already been done, thinking, okay, we can improve on it, you're really living in the present. You're not looking to the future. He says that whilst we can't predict the future exactly, the two things we do know about the future is that firstly, it's going to be different. And secondly, it's somewhat rooted in today's world. So, when we can't just be looking at the present, but at the same time, we can't just completely contradict the present. It's going to be somewhat similar, but it's also going to be different. So, that's a kind of thinking that we need to start to move towards. What things are going to be different and how can we capitalize upon them? So, most people answer the question wrongly by just looking at different ways of seeing the present and looking backwards. But all the good answers are close as we can come to actually just looking into the future. The most contrarian thing to do is not to oppose the crowd, but it's to just think for yourself. So, all this talk about the future and about, you know, being a contrarian and thinking differently is sort of the starting point. And now he relates that to business. So, he says the business version of the contrarian question is what valuable company is nobody building? So, we want to obviously create value by doing something new and something different. And Peter Thiel suggests that the way we need to be thinking is like, what's something extremely valuable out there that nobody else is doing yet. Yeah, I think this question is just an amazing one to just ponder on what valuable company is nobody building. And it just shows how important it is to be contrarian if you're actually going to innovate because if you're not contrarian, you're just conventional, then you're just basically thinking the same way as everyone else. So, part of that question is what valuable company. So, a big part of that is having value and creating value isn't just enough, he says. He says you also need to capture the value. Yes, and to sort of differentiate between these two ideas, he uses the US airline industry versus Google. So, the US airline industry, obviously, obviously, it's a valuable thing for people to be able to fly across the country and around the world. You know, they serve millions of passengers every year. It creates hundreds of billions of dollars of value each year. But he's saying in 2012, the average uh, airfare was $178. And the margins the airlines made on that was just an average of 37 cents per passenger per trip. That's freaking ridiculous, isn't crazy. it? Crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. And so, he says, well, compare that to Google. They create less value, but they capture more of that value. So, they had, a, I guess, a, a way to capture that value. They're saying that their overall revenue, they brought in $50 billion in, 
in 2012 compared to 160 billion of the airlines, but it kept 21% of those revenues as profit. So they had more than 100x profit margin than all of the airlines combined. So the big difference there is the airlines compete with each other and it's basically a race to the bottom, cutting margins to uh, come in at a cheaper price and your competitor to become to the point where you're attractive. But Google just basically just stands there alone, doesn't it? Mm. There's no one else there who's competing with Google. So obviously, Google is a monopoly, which Peter Thiel is all about. He says that Google is actually, at the time of writing, you know, 2012, Google... Uh, makes so much money and keeps so much profit that the value, you know, like the the stock market value of Google is actually three times more than every US airline combined, which is pretty crazy. Unbelievable, just from one company. So, economists use two simplified models just to explain the difference and dig into it a bit deeper. You got perfect competition and monopoly. In uh, economics, monopoly is like a, a dirty word. You don't want monopolies. Uh, you want to break up the no- monopolies. You want competition because it means it's you know more fair for everyone. Com- perfect competition is almost this uh, utopian world that you know there's no difference between the different companies. They're all offering the same thing, and ultimately everybody wins because the amount of supplies exactly meets the amount that is demanded. And it's like this this dream scenario for economists that there's perfect competition and the market is very efficient. But Peter Thiel says that's a crock of shit because if you're competing, it means you're losing. Mm. So in this competitive market, basically we end up with no company being undifferentiated and you just end up with homogeneous products that are basically just commodities. So another company can come in and just go in at a cheaper price. But no firm has any market power, so they basically just sell at any price the market determines. So they can't dictate their own prices at all. And if there is money to be made, new firms will enter the market and uh, if it is attractive for this brief moment, all of a sudden the supply increases to respond to the market and then again the prices just drop down to equilibrium basically at the 37 cents a passenger (laughs) flight like you were just saying before. Um, And then if too many firms enter the market, they'll actually suffer losses and some will fall so it actually go back to that equilibrium where supply uh, equals demand. So basically, in economic theory, this idea of perfect competition is is uh, is amazing. But in the real world, it's it's not a, a good place to be no. from a company's perspective. Peter Thiel says that what you want to actually be is get to as close a monopoly as possible. That means that you're really the only person that has access to this market. You've got exactly what people want and you're the only one who's doing it. That means that you have power. You can sort of almost set the prices, you know, within a reasonable sort of limit. And it means that you don't have competitors trying to steal the market away from you. Yeah, you basically own the market, set your own prices. So by monopoly, we mean the company that is so good at what it does that no other firm can come even close to a substitute. And Google is a good example of them because they are a company that went from zero to one and really started in a whole new area. And all these monopolist companies kind of have a positive feedback loop and they really take care of their employees because they really can afford to. They can do things other than just make money. Uh, you know, like Google, you got your slides and you got your, your candy every lunch, your free lunch and beers after work and massages and beds and all this kind of shit. But if you're in perfect competition, there is no way that businesses can afford these extra marginal costs on the end. Yeah. Teal says that the lesson for entrepreneurs is is blatant. It's clear. If you want to create and capture lasting value, don't build an undifferentiated commodity business. 
If you just think, oh, yeah, this is working, I'm going to have a crack at that and see if I can get it to work for me as well, yeah, you're pretty much going to lose, as Peter Thiel says. You know, maybe in the short term, uh, you can capture a little bit of value, but over the long term, really the only way to win is to build something close to a monopoly. He says that all happy companies are different in that each one earns a monopoly by solving a unique problem. But he also says that all failed companies are the same, and that's that they failed to escape competition. So if you haven't figured it out by now, you uh, you want a you want a monopoly. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> you don't want to be in perfect competition. So Big Pete, he's got a few ways to characterize a monopoly for you to understand really how to head in that direction. The first thing you need is proprietary technology. So, so this is the most substantive advantage a company can have because it makes your product difficult or even impossible to or to replicate. If you've got a patent for whatever technology you got and no one else can match it, then obviously it's all yours and that perfect competition can't creep in. Yeah, that's the, the real key is to have something that's uniquely yours, that's completely different, that you've created. You know, you've made this brand new value and it's, and it's yours. An important thing that he says here and he, he talks about a lot is that what you really need is something that's 10x better, something that's 10 times better because we're all very comfortable. You know, we've got a bit of status quo bias and that we like to do what we've always done. If something's a little bit better, if it's 10% better, uh, even if it's, he says, you know, 50% better, even if it's twice as good, we're pretty unlikely to change. We're unwilling to change. If we're sort of happy and comfortable with what we're doing, we're probably not going to change. So really the only way to agitate someone to change is to come up with something that's exceptionally better. Come up with something that's at least 10 times better than all the alternatives is really the only way you've got to grab someone to, to shake them out of the, the status quo. The second thing you need to get right is the network effects. So what the network effects are is how more people using that product makes the product more useful, which attracts more people, which makes the product more useful. So the network effects basically a positive feedback loop for your product or whatever you might have. So if you think about it, for example, at the very start of Facebook, it really didn't mean jack shit if just two of your two people in the whole university had Facebook. But all of a sudden, the more people it gets on, the more reason you need to be on it. And then it really had that and gained its momentum to take on the whole world to the point where your grandma has to get Facebook because she's not going to be invited to the family <laughs> gathering if she's if she's not on it. Your poor grandma. Yeah, and if you think even back to like uh, the very first telephones, obviously have a massive network effect. If if two blokes have got telephones, uh, they can call each other, but that's about it. But the more and more people that get telephones, the more and more powerful those network effects become. If you can then call anybody, it's a lot more valuable. So it's uh, obviously the more people that get added into this network, the more nodes there are, the more the more valuable that network becomes. So network effects can be very powerful, but you'll never get to reap the awards if your product isn't valuable to its very first users. So, for example, if you think about Uber, who benefits from the network effect, they offer bribes of 10 to 20 bucks and they're all these free rides at the very end. So, they're really paying people to come on board to get the network effects. I think PayPal, he was saying somewhere in the book, had the same thing mm. where they were actually paying people 20 bucks because they knew if they hit a certain point where enough people were using it, then all of a sudden there's enough value intrinsic intrinsic in it for people to jump on board without being bribed into it. Yeah, PayPal I think started as like a way to pay people via email. So like you could email someone money and what they did was uh, if you 
if I emailed you and you didn't have PayPal and you signed up thanks to my link, you get 10 bucks, I get 10 bucks. And that's obviously just one way to, to grow it. Uh, the third important characteristic of a monopoly is economies of scale. And so economies of scale is sort of another one of these economic theories, means that the bigger you get, the the better you get at making this thing. So obviously, uh, I'm trying to think of a, an example. Say if you're if you're making t-shirts, it's very expensive to make one t-shirt uh, or even 50 t-shirts. But if you can then sell so many t-shirts that you're pumping them out in this massive factory, uh, then it becomes cheaper and cheaper each unit. If and if you're selling a hundred thousand t-shirts. The economies of scale means you've worked out the systems to be able to make it a lot cheaper than just make one T-shirt. Yeah, so say if you factor in all the capital costs, the hundred grand, and you only made a thousand T-shirts, that means it costs a hundred dollars in capital just for the T-shirts you sell. But if you sell a hundred thousand T-shirts, then all of a sudden it costs a dollar per T-shirt to pay for the initial factory costs. The fourth important characteristic of a monopoly is branding. So you can't just so, I guess by definition, a company has a, a monopoly on its own name or its own brand, but it's really important to, to build that up because obviously some brands are more valuable than others. Yeah. So, if you, you know, like Google, for example, it's a verb now. Um, there's no really competitors who are going to jump in there and you're not going to Google Bing or something, are you? Because once it owns that brand, um, it's it's already created a significant moat for, for other mm. people to come in. So, you might be thinking... You know, oh, that's all good and well for Uber. That's all good and well for Facebook. It's all good and well for Google. How the hell, you know, if I'm sitting here right now, how the hell can I move in that direction and get get to that position, right? But he says the way to do it in every single case and the way these people did it is they started very small. So, they found a real niche market to move into in the first place and then the whole goal at the very start was to dominate a large share of a very tiny market and then from there you can move on and grow and get bigger but the first thing is just to choose one niche and dominate that area yeah it's like the ideas in the book we did a little while ago crossing the chasm where the first step is to find that very 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 small tight niche where you can effectively capture all or most of that market and become the monopoly of that one very small niche and then obviously from there you gradually expand into related, you know, parallel almost niches as well. We don't go from zero to one in terms of going from nothing to try and capture the whole world. You pick a very small niche, dominate that, and then pick the next closest small niche and dominate that as well. Yeah, so for Facebook, I think what university was that? Was it Stanford? Uh, or I think Harvard. Harvard or Stanford, whatever it might be, but they just basically chose one university only and dominated that before they moved on. I'm sure Uber chose one city. They didn't try and dominate the whole world and put all their resources uh, spread out against the whole world as well. So that sort of wraps up our section on on monopolies. And it's, you know, if, if you go to an economics class or if you're in the government, then monopolies are bad and you want to try and get as much competition as possible because it means more value to the consumers. But if you're on the other end um, and if you're trying to build a business, a monopoly is definitely what you want to go for. The next sort of section he talks about is secrets. And obviously, it sort of ties into, you know, starting a company, you want to have some kind of secret that leads to you creating an enormous amount of value. If you think back to the business question, uh, what valuable company is nobody building? It's basically 
another way of saying is like, what secret do you have in this world mm. that no one else really, really knows about? And what area can you actually exploit? Yeah, he says that every, you know, every famous idea today was once a secret. It was once unknown and once unsuspected. And once uh, upon a time, it was something that people didn't know about. It was a secret until it wasn't. So, obviously, we need to go digging for secrets because they're out there. And if we can find it and make it a mainstream idea that everyone knows about, then we're winning. So, I think it's really important to just have the assumption that there are so many secrets out there in the world uh, that are just being waiting to be found. You just mm. need to be a contrarian and you need to really work hard to actually get there. So, if there are so many secrets, and let's just assume there is, there are also so many world-changing companies that are basically just yet to be started. He gives us a little spectrum uh, of three things. On the far left is conventions, in the middle is secrets, and on the far right is mysteries. He says that conventions are, are easy. They're the goals that can be satisfied with minimal effort. The secrets are hard, but they're goals that can be satisfied with serious effort. And mysteries, they're impossible. They're goals that can't be satisfied no matter how much effort you make. So, it's obviously very tempting to go for the conventions. It takes minimal effort. You can probably achieve what you want to achieve and it feels safe and it feels comfortable. It might also be tempting to go for a mystery because you think that's something so massive that if I solve this, I would, I would be the, the master of the universe. But that's pretty futile as well because it's not possible. So, we need to find that nice middle ground, that secret that it's going to be very hard to do. And it's probably going to be very uncomfortable and there's probably a lot of risk involved, but that's all you need to try and work hard to find. And like secrets sound sick, right? But we don't really just go around there looking for secrets all the time. And I think we've all got narratives in our heads why we need to be conventional and I'm sure it's got roots in some serious evolutionary psychology in some way. But there's real reasons why we just don't go after them. The first reason is incrementalism. Yeah, we think that you know, from an early age, we're very much taught to grow things in an incremental way. You know, we go step by step, day by day, grade by grade. Each time we achieve something, we step a little bit up to the next level and try to achieve that. So, we're going, taking small steps to improve incrementally. We're not really trained or we're not used to going out there and trying to think of something completely different that is way against what we're expecting. You're really basically just going for an A. You're going for an A plus, compete with all your classmates and just get an A plus. You're not really going to school to, I don't know, just start drawing pictures and getting all creative on tests and answer it in ways that you've never done. Uh, the teacher's going to give you a zero if you actually act like a, the teal style and be completely contrarian. The second one is risk aversion. So, because there's a strong chance that if you think you've got a secret, there's a fair chance you're probably going to be wrong. So, it's very risky to try and find these secrets. So, the third is complacency. So, the social elites out there, all the, the rich people and who've got all the power, they've got the most of the freedom and the ability to explore all this new thinking that's required. They've got the resources to do some pretty cool shit. But for them, they think, why search for a new secret if you can just simply just collect all the rents on all the things that have already been done? Yeah, complacency to think that you know you can just sit back on your hands you don't have to try too hard and you can probably still be moderately successful doing something similar to what has already been done and you know the teal gives a, a few whacks here you know you might be thinking if it were possible how come somebody else hasn't done it already you know i'm sure there's so, so many people more creative or more intelligent than me that could be doing this stuff so 
why should I do it? These are sort of just excuses. You know, maybe you might think if everything worth doing has already been done, then you may as well feign an allergy to achievement and just sit back and become a barista. So Teal's given a few whacks here. And I think it's probably fair enough that most people are very complacent. Most people do sit back and just either let somebody else do it or they just try to scrape by on things that have already been done. Yeah, and just be like, why even try, mm. right? Why even try? I'm just going to become a hipster, be a barista, you know, bit of sour grapes. It's like uh, that that uh, metaphor, and I remember from what book, but if you say if there's uh, grapes and vines, you just complain that all the, the grapes at the top of the vine are sour just because you can't even reach it in the first place. Mate, I think you remember what book that was from. That was Andy Fred. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't make it in the app though, did it? Nah. <laughs> you love a bit of anti-fragile. But obviously what, what Teal says is, you know, whilst he gives us all a few whacks for not trying a little bit harder to find secrets, obviously you need to try. You can't find a secret without looking for it. And so the truth is that there are there are so many secrets still left to be found, but the only people that are going to find them are the ones that go out there and search for them. Yeah. There's a lot more to do in science, medicine, engineering, um, there's new ways of generating energy. We can invent faster ways to travel the planet or even escape the planet. And we're never going to learn them unless we demand to know them and force ourselves to look for the ways and be really relentless in this pursuit. So how to find secrets. Teal says there are two types of secrets. The first type is about uh, what he calls nature. So these are the things that exist all around us. And to find these types of secrets, you need to study some kind of undiscovered aspect of the physical world. So that's the things that tie into the the science, the medicine, the engineering and the technology, those types of secrets. His second type of secret is people secrets. So these are things that you need to analyze people and their behavior and their psychology to try and find out things about them that they don't even know about themselves or things that they're trying to hide. So that's what Peter Thiel says. The two types of successful companies will go for either trying to find a a secret about nature or a secret about people. So that's a, a good bit on on secrets. Obviously, this is critical if you want to take any, anything from zero to one. If you're going from one to N, one means it's already been found. Zero to one means it's basically a secret no one else has really dug, dug into in the past. The next section of the book is about seven questions that every business must answer. The first is an engineering question. Can I create some kind of breakthrough rather than just an incremental advance? So companies, as you were saying earlier, must strive for a 10x improvement, not 20%. And he talks about Tesla throughout this whole book. And this is a good company or a good example who's answered all these questions correctly. So Tesla's technology is so good that other car companies rely on it. Like Mercedes uses the Tesla powertrain, Toyota uses their motor and so forth. That's pretty crazy. The second... Uh, important thing that you need to answer is timing. Is now the right time to start this type of business? Third question is all about a monopoly. Are you starting with a big share of a small market? Yeah, obviously, monopoly is what we want. The fourth is the people question. Do you have the right team? Do you have the, the right people on the bus, the right type of people that are going to drive this idea and this business forward? So, Peter Thiel's got a bit of a philosophy here. Uh, He uses the rule that he doesn't invest in people who are wearing suit and ties who call themselves salespeople. The best salespeople out there actually don't look like salespeople. Mm. So, you know, he's got a photo in the book of a a, a wanky looking 65-year-old CEO (laughs) who's wearing a suit and tie looking all immaculate. 
next to te- next to Elon Musk, who's just wearing Occupy Mars, like a little T-shirt. Obviously, you'll jump in the in the Elon bandwagon there. <laughs> I love it. Another a bit of a side note that we couldn't squeeze in anywhere else, but I think needs to, to get in. He talks about like the the sales idea, which came up in Perennial Seller. Peter Thiel says, if you look around your company and you don't see any salespeople, then you're probably the salesperson. So especially in a in a startup that we're talking about, everybody's in is in sales at the very start. You don't have a dedicated team of salespeople and as you say the the dedicated team of salespeople are probably not the best salesmen anyway that if the people who are truly building the product and have that belief in it they're all the salespeople the fifth question is the distribution question so do you have a way not to just create but deliver the product the sixth is a durability question Will your market position be defensible 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now? Obviously, you don't want to flash in the pan. You don't just want to grab a small amount of value in the next couple of years. You want to build something substantial over the, the time span of decades, not months or years. So, that's a, bit, a pretty big time frame to be looking at things that I think, uh, you know, it's probably hard to look at something 10 to 20 years from now, but you to somehow speculate. And the seventh question is the secret question. Have you identified a unique opportunity that others don't see? So, they're the seven questions that every business must answer. So, if you've got an idea, these are all the things that you need to think about in order to determine if you're creating a brand new valuable company that is you know, something that is going to go from zero to one. And Tealy is a big thinker. It's not just your local cafe. I don't think you're mm. going to have to really answer all these questions. It's the kind of question if you're uh, ambitious enough to create the next Google. Yeah, exactly. If you want to make a Google, a Facebook, a, a Tesla, all these uh, things, then uh, obviously these are the types of questions you need to be answering. So, he rounds off the book with the founder's paradox uh, and the weird thing about all the most successful founders in the world and... You know, his his roots are in PayPal with, we already spoke about the mafia. They're just wild, wild people. And they're all weird fucking people <laughs> The PayPal as well. mafia. We should cl- clarify if you, if you miss that. He's talking, they called themselves the PayPal mafia. What do I call it? The, the mafia. Oh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> oh shit. Yeah. So, the, the PayPal mafia, this, the six guys that, that started PayPal that we said, you know, they all went on to do wild things, not only building this $1.5 billion PayPal, but also they all made their own billion-dollar companies after that. And these six guys, four of them made bombs while they were in high school. Five of them were actually 23 years or younger. Four of them had been born outside of the US and three of those had escaped from communist countries. So, they're um, pretty crazy crazy dudes, I guess. You can imagine all of them had a good answer to the controlling yeah. question <laughs> that Which both of us have struggled, struggled with. You haven't asked me yet, mate. Maybe you'll ask me at the end of the episode. Oh, you've had, you've had a bit of time now. So, the big difference is in traits. So, if you think about the normal distribution of personality traits that everybody has, it's kind of a normal distribution where everything's skewed to the middle. Some people are super strong, some are people are super weak, some are geniuses, some are dull, but most people just fall in the middle and then the standard deviations to the end and then people are very weirdly at the end. Yeah, exactly. That's a, the normal population. You know, most people are in the in the middle, in the average, and there's a few people at the ends. He says if you were to probably do a statistical analysis of super successful uh, business founders, you'd actually flip that upside down, and that you wouldn't have many people in the middle, but you'd have really uh, a bulk of people at either one end or the other. So mm-hmm. they'd either be they'd either be really really uh, crazy, or that maybe they'd be really 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 conservative, but they're not just going to be average. So they'd be having these extreme traits, but sometimes they'd oscillate between the other extreme. They'd really spend a little bit of time somewhere in the middle. So they had the ability to oscillate between sullen jerkiness, where they're assholes, 
and then they'll go to the very other end where they've got this really charismatic personality that's really appealing to people and for people to follow. And sometimes they might simultaneously oscillate between being an extreme insider and an extreme outsider. So where do these extreme traits actually come from? Uh, Pete, Big Pete says, because this is something that we want to really emulate. And he says, perhaps they weren't born like this and they aren't as uh, internally extreme as they're really appearing to be. Yeah, he talks about people who maybe have cultivated these ideas, like say uh, Richard Branson, you know, he's got this trademark lion's mane hair and he's, you know, he's cultivated this extremeness of, you know, this crazy dude who does crazy stunts, who dresses up as a woman to launch his, his new uh, airplanes or he does kiteboarding with naked supermodels. He does all this crazy stuff that is, it's like a, a character almost that he's created. Similar thing with Lady Gaga. So, she's basically a founder also, even though she's an artist, um, but she's founded her brand. So, Lady Gaga isn't a real person. She's just really created this character that she uses and she's really been able to monetize. So, she wears costumes so bizarre that anyone else wearing her ridiculous costumes, you'd be thrown in the psych ward. (laughs) And Gaga, you know, she might write the song, she was born this way. That's bullshit. She wasn't (laughs) born that way. She created it out of nothing. Yeah, which is, is promising. You know, you know, we were saying that the founders are generally uh, have these extreme tendencies, these extreme traits, and you might think, oh, I'm just an average sort of Joe Blow. I, can't, I couldn't possibly do it. But he's given us some examples here of people that, you know, that maybe they were just Joe Blows, but they've actively chosen to cultivate this sort of extreme trait. So, it's a bit of a paradox. There's one danger that the founder might become so certain in their own myth that they lose their mind. But at the same time, you really need someone who's got this disenchantment and this contrarian view to actually bring in new wisdom and these new ideas. So, if you get the run-of-the-mill conventional Joe Blow running the company, then that's not the person who can take things from zero to one. So, at the conclusion of the book, he starts to, again, look towards the future. Basically, we have the option to either do nothing and let the future be run by somebody else or we have the ability to do something and decide that the future is up to us and we are going to play our own part in shaping the future. Yeah, we can't take for granted that it could be better. It could be cooked or it could be amazing. So, it's really up to us and our task today is to find singular ways to create new things. They're not just going to make the future just a little bit different or but better and go from zero to one. <laughs>